This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm on the telephone with Ron Block, NR2B. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Steve. Ron, you have a really interesting article in the July 2022 issue of QST Magazine in which you describe basically how a lightning protection, lightning mitigation grounding system was set up uh, around the clubhouse of the Gloucester County, New Jersey Amateur Radio Club. And uh, you go into some detail in the article, and uh, for me, that's the fascinating part. But before we we get to that, for listeners who may not recognize your call sign, Ron, could you give us just a little bit of history? Because you've been involved in what I might facetiously call the lightning business for quite some time. Oh, yes. Uh, well, it, it started way back. I used to, I worked for a computer manufacturer for uh, actually retired uh, after 25 years uh, working for them. But uh, about midway through the process, there was a major layoff uh, in our organization. And uh, I looked around and said, I need a backup plan. Now, fortunately, I was not one of the ones laid off, but all of my staff and all of my bosses were. So I had to go figure out what to do. So I decided to, at that point in time, to uh, become a distributor of the polyphaser products. Now, I have a sort of a backdoor into that process in that uh, Roger Block, uh, KD7UT as Silent Key, uh, was the uh, creator and developer of the uh, Polyphaser product line. And uh, so he was nice enough to say, yeah, even if even though you're my brother, uh, I'll let you be a distributor. So, yes, I was a distributor for them for uh, 31 years. And with direct access to... Uh, the knowledge base that existed in my brother's head. Uh, he trained me and taught me a great deal about the process. And then uh, partway through the 31 years or so, I uh, spent a great deal of time in the field actually doing uh, site visitations and making recommendations and seeing that they were completed and observing the differences between the unprotected and the protected sites. Now, veteran amateurs myself among them, are very familiar with the name Polyphaser. But for those that aren't, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the product? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Roger was a new graduate uh, from Drexel University and had a job in Florida. I don't remember the exact company name. It's one of the antenna providers that's in the Kissimmee, uh, Orlando area. And uh, he was tasked with building a piece of electronics that uh, required an antenna. So he built the product that, you know, got it ready. And then their uh, testing lab and the use of the antenna was at a, uh, on the roof of the building. So he went up there, connected it to the antenna and proceeded to uh, go through the process of uh, testing whatever this device was supposed to do. The day ended and uh, he said, well, good, come back tomorrow. Except tomorrow, uh, in the intervening time, was a lightning storm which struck the antennas. And uh, when he arrived the next day, there was a pile of cinders uh, in place of the product that he was testing. So 
That actually occurred two days in a row, two more days in a row. Jeez. So uh, he then had the idea, I think I have to do something about this. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the genesis of the original coax protector, uh, which was, you know, a, a pair of, in this case, UHF connectors, female type, uh, on a uh, aluminum block with a gas tube in series with the center, I'm sorry, with a capacitor in series with the center pin, and then a gas tube from the antenna side to ground. So that was the original protector. And uh, heck, my kids, uh, as they were growing up, would rotate through uh, his garage uh, on the summer vacations while they would run drill presses and you know do various things that were associated with the business. Huh. And it, I guess it wasn't until maybe 30 years later that uh, I stepped back and look at uh, the fact that basically Roger created the coaxial uh, aspects of the whole lightning protection industry. I mean, they always had down conductors and things like this, but for protecting of the communications equipment, he was really the originator of that process. And a name that uh, is well-known to this day. <laughs> well, the name has a little history to it, too. Uh, back at that time, you had to, when you got a phone, you had to register it with a name, a real human's name. So he figured out Polly was the first name and Phaser was the second name or the last name. <laughs> so ergo polyphaser. Yep. Yes. And two caps, two cap P's in it. That's no right. Space. That's right. In the case of uh, the club, getting back to the Gloucester County Club there, uh, according to your article, as I read it, you were facing a challenging situation in terms of really making a robust lightning protection system. Because as I understand it, uh, the club had a tower for HF, a tower for VHF. They were grounded, but there was no external to the building ground connection within the clubhouse itself, just the AC ground. Is that right? Basically, yes. Uh, it, it started uh, with the, the gift of uh, a, a one and a half kilowatt amplifier uh, by one of the members. It was donated uh, as a, at the behest of a, a friend of his. It was his mentor. And, uh, it's, uh, basically they, well, they read the book, uh, on the instructions for installation and said, yep, must have a ground. Well, we looked at it and said, yep, we've got a ground, but trouble is we have about six or seven of them and mm -hmm. they're all independent and not interconnected and thereby hung the whole issue of we've got to go and fix that process. Okay. Yes. Each tower, uh, the two major towers had uh, their own ground rods associated with them. Uh, several smaller towers all had ground rods associated with them. And, of course, the AC, uh, the utility uh, folks put in a ground there. So, you know, all these non-interconnected non grounds. Mm. And as the, as the article basically, I think, says, well, it's been a while since I've read it even, uh, if you take uh, a radio and plug it into an AC, you know, take the simplest radio in the world, plug it into AC. Okay, you're connecting to one of the grounds. You're connected to the utility ground. Yes. Now, if you take a coax cable and bring it off of a tower, which also has a ground on it, and connect it to that radio, you've now connected the radio to a second ground. Hmm. And now if you're unfortunate enough to have a local uh, lightning strike, you know, into the ground even. It doesn't have to be on anything in particular. Uh, 
you now have, as that energy begins to dissipate, you get uh, voltage differences between the two grounds. And uh, that voltage difference can be very substantial, you know, into the thousands of volts. And of course, your radio plugged into the, uh, connected to the antenna and plugged into the AC is connected to two of those grounds. And uh, the voltage difference is going to be equalized through the radio. So that's sort of the genesis and the, uh, the driving factor of trying to unite all the grounds uh, within the clubhouse. So you were basically attempting to create a zone of protection for both the HF and the VHF radio rooms. Right. Uh, they're fairly small rooms, so they're not, not huge. And so, yes, we decided, okay, we'll create a room around the HF side, uh, which is the one that's documented in the article. And then uh, we're actually in process, including this coming weekend, of uh, continuing the process on the VHF side. And uh, we did uh, that creation of that zone of protection for the entire room because we really can't predict, as uh, would be in a standard or a usual uh, HF station, we can't predict what's going to happen. The room has a room for three operating positions. Only right now, only one of them is uh, utilized. But the others, uh, occasionally, if somebody walks in with a rig, says, hey, I'd like to try this on your, uh, you know, whiz bang antenna fine we can we can accommodate that or if somebody has to do a repair on a radio or something like that they can uh, work at the bench behind and uh, they also have access uh, to the antenna systems so we we tried to be fairly flexible uh, in uh, designing the system that way and what a system it is (laughs) i was looking at uh, i think it was figure four i noticed that uh, you have a grounded uh, perimeter, if you will, around the entire building. Did you actually have to dig a trench to lay that conductor? Well, we haven't gotten that far yet. Okay, we, we put the system into the uh, HF room. Uh, we're working currently on the exact equivalent of that in the VHF side. Now, once that's... And, and those two systems are independently grounded uh, to the outside world. The, the next step in the process then is to start to bond all the grounds together. And that's where we come into this thing called a perimeter ground, which basically has two functions. Uh, the first function is to equalize, I, I actually say it this way, to uh, act as a shorting bar, to uh, equalize the voltage under the structure. Okay, if you take a, uh, a hit on an antenna, for example, it's going to come down and begin to radiate out from that antenna. So it's going to catch the one edge of the uh, building and begin to elevate it uh, significantly. Yes. The, building, the other end of the building doesn't know it's coming. So therefore, the, the uh, energy or the electrons are going to have the potential to jump onto the building frame because it's a better conductor. It happens to be I-beam steel. So it's now going to follow, use the building as a uh, more conductive path than the earth. And that byproduct uh, has damaging effects to the building and its inhabitants and uh, all the electronics inside. So we use the shorting bar called a perimeter ground to uh, equalize or help equalize that uh, voltage difference. And then the second item that the perimeter ground does is it gives you the opportunity to bond all of the other external grounds, such as the two towers, 
the two or three local towers that are there, the um, propane tank, and the utility ground. So it just gives you a chance to interconnect and bond all those. Now you have, at least for the building, from the building's perspective, a completely unified uh, ground system. Okay, then we'll, of course, we'll extend that uh, perimeter ground so that it ties in with the radials uh, on each of the two tall towers. I was going to mention, I saw, and of course read the description in the article, about, uh, and I'm going to get this wrong, Ron, uh, single point ground panel, is that correct? SPGP, yes. Yes. I can type that in my sleep without looking at the keys now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we started recording, you had mentioned that uh, you are getting emails in response to your article uh, with a number of people asking, well, if I want to install such a thing, where do I put it? And, And what are you telling them generally? Oh, uh, I'm telling them that it's it's a hard decision process sometimes. Okay, there there is a couple of ways of doing it, and it's all based on uh, the the premise that you understand what the single point ground panel and its mounted protectors do. So let me just sort of start there. Uh, the the job of a protector is, is relatively straightforward. Uh, it's to short the conductors of the cable that it's uh, in series with to to the case of the uh, protector. That's all it does. So the co- in the case of the coax, it takes the center pin and shorts it to the shield, where the shield is already mounted or already connected to the protector. Uh, in the case of the AC power, uh, it takes the uh, hot and the uh, neutral and shorts them to the case of the protector, which is the, the gra- also the ground conductor. So with that in mind, as the individual uh, protectors, if they are mounted on a conductive surface, the single point ground panel, as we've called it, uh, then all of the conductors to the radio basically are shorted together. So the radio is connected to the outside world you know, during the strike event with a single logical conductor because everything's shorted. Oh, okay. And that's the key ingredient in the whole process. You've got to be able to protect the radio and make sure that the current does not flow uh, among or within the conductors of that radio. Now, that's not to say that the radio still stays at ground potential because it doesn't. Uh, It will be elevated uh, in some cases up to almost 10,000 volts above a local ground, but there's no current flow because it's a static uh, build because of all the conductors being shorted together. So that's the whole premise behind the single-point ground panel and mounting of the protectors. Now, now the panel itself can be any conductive surface. It can be aluminum, copper, steel, whatever metal uh, is uh, fancy for you today. And uh, it can be uh, any shape or any size. However, I would caution that as you start to spread protectors out, you know, four, five, 10, 15 feet, you start to introduce uh, a little bit of the speed of light into the process uh, where electrons travel at about uh, a foot per nanosecond. And then when you get too many nanoseconds out of time, uh, you have issues with the protectors not closing all or close to the same time, and you allow some current to begin to flow uh, through the uh, through the radio. And after a while, uh, if it's a very short period, you've maybe just done some very transitory damage 
such as maybe erode part of a uh, uh, an integrated circuit or part of a uh, conductor within uh, a transistor. However, if you let it go a few more nanoseconds, it actually can uh, open that conductor or fuse that conductor open and uh, cause you know a complete failure in the system. I never thought about the time factor, uh, especially in nanoseconds, that that could be uh, a serious thing. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things from from my consulting side uh, is you go into the sites and they say, yeah, about six months ago we had a lightning strike and now we're experiencing equipment failure. Mm. And uh, you know, there is a latent damage uh, issue associated with it, you know, where it does a partial destruction or a partial meltdown of, you know, some silicon and uh, but not enough to uh, kill the device uh, outright. But it does fail eventually. Huh. Well, what about somebody, Ron, like me, who just, I'm an ordinary ham, stations on the second floor of my house. Uh, <laughs> short of disconnecting my antenna whenever there's a thunderstorm in the area, is there anything else I could be doing in terms of uh, helping to protect myself? Well, you just raised a big red flag for me. <laughs> okay. Uh, do not. Do not, under any circumstances, uh, disconnect that antenna and just sort of leave the coax hanging around. Ah. Uh, if, if you were to take a direct strike on that antenna, yes, it's going to follow the coax cable. And sort of like cars on the freeway, uh, it's going to come and they're all going to line up and push each other uh, down that freeway till they get to the end of that cable. And then once they get there, they're literally going to spray into the room. Oh, and find any other path to uh, be aground. Hmm, including me. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, the the average lightning strike uh, is somewhere around five or six miles. So that's that's a tremendous potential. And so short distances, you know, a switch in series with the coax line, it's not there. It's going to blow right through that. Uh, and it's going to blow right off the end of the cable into the room. So uh, as a minimum, I would strongly recommend the creation of a single-point ground panel with the appropriate protectors, uh, as is depicted in the article, and uh, leave the antenna always connected to that surge arrestor or that protector. Okay. That way, at least it's got a path to some kind of a ground. Now, whether second floor uh, shacks are a little hard because you really can't get to an earth ground very easily uh, in most cases. Uh, and if you attempt to do it, you you have to use something that's fairly wide, you know, like a foot wide copper strap <laughs> to uh, be that conductor just to get the inductance down a little bit so that you've got half a chance of getting that RF signal resulting from the lightning strike uh, into a ground system. It sort of triggers me to say that uh, the center frequency or the, the mean frequency on the lightning strike, when you take into consideration the rise time of the pulse and uh, the uh, ringing associated with the cables and antennas and things like this, puts a signal that's, that's in the uh, one megahertz, you know, five, say 500 kC to about a mega and a half. Uh, as RF. I mean, yes, it's got a great uh, DC component to it, but it also has a substantial RF component to it. 
and of course uh, the DC, yeah, you can t- you can handle that on a wire uh, of reasonable size, but yes. uh, the RF side you can't. It's a choke at that point in time. So uh, you start to think about okay, how do I do it? And uh, you know, inch and a half, or I'm sorry, six inch, twelve inch wide copper strap uh, is at least an attempt to get the least uh, inductive conductor you can. Getting that through a wall from a middle room to the outside is uh, next to impossible. I can imagine. But yeah, the general recommendation for uh, second story uh, inner rooms and things like this where you don't have access to the outside is to just use the AC uh, ground uh, as, as your ground point, recognizing that it is not an RF ground, not even close, uh, but it is at least a DC ground and uh, will eventually drain off uh, the, ele- the equipment elevation so that it comes back to uh, the normal ground level uh, potentials. Excellent advice, Rod. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.